0: Civility talk is bullshit. It's bullshit. We talk about civility, we reach for this early modern concept because we want to punish and to exclude and to suppress.
1: But to be frank, I want civility. I want people to behave, I want people to respect one another, and I believe that civility is the way to conduct a society, a conversation, and our everyday exchanges, even with people we vehemently disagree with. But here, Theresa Bejan, who teaches at Oxford University, disagrees with me. Her book, Mere Civility, Disagreement and the Limits of Toleration, probes this concept from its origins in John Locke and Thomas Hobbes and Roger Williams, who founded what would be today's state of Rhode Island, and explains that mere civility is something quite different from what people are calling for today in politics, in journalism, in everyday discourse. Be civil. Respect the rules. She actually pushes that concept into a different space and explained to me what mere civility would be in distinction to this civility talk, which she considered bullshit. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not Cabaret. It's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world. With Uli Baer. I'm very happy today to be sitting here in New York City on a beautiful fall day with Teresa Bichan, who is Associate Professor of Political Theory at Oxford University in England, actually. She's come over to visit for some other things, so I really appreciate it, Teresa, that you're here. With me today to join me on Think About It. And you are a political theorist and you've written a book called Mere Civility Disagreement and the Limits of Toleration that was published by Harvard University Press. And that, probably to your own surprise, has proven so relevant in the current cultural climate, both here in Great Britain, all over Europe, in many democracies where you lay out a concept of civility that isn't quite the one that people invoke over and over right now. Do you want to start out by saying how you got interested in this topic where you look at the kind of prehistory of our country's commitment to political disagreement that we cherish and value and think is an important part of democratic culture.
0: Yeah. Well, firstly, thank you so much for having me, and I'm so happy that we can have this conversation here in person. Yeah, my experience of writing the book, which began as my PhD dissertation, was, you know, I had been working on the thesis for over eight years by the time it came out as a book, And I was completely taken by surprise, I mean, not complete surprise, because I'd chosen the topic and we're working on the topic and kind of was interested in the way that civility constantly cropped up in American political discourse. But I was totally taken by surprise by the timing and the fact that it came out right around the 2016 presidential election suddenly meant that I was getting lots of invitations to come and talk about civility to people who I was unaware, you know, had interest or paid any attention to monographs about 17th century intellectual history. About Locke
1: <laughs> and Hobbes and Roger Williams right. who was the founder of today's is Rhode Island. So you did historical study of the origins of this concept or where you think it originates. Yeah. You also written about how it has a prehistory sort of with the Stoics and Greek philosophy but exactly. you're focusing really on sort of 16th and 17th century British thinking in the American colonies.
0: Right so that's absolutely right. So in a way it's been a really edifying experience because the book I mean it's written with popular debates and current events in view, but it's very much a scholarly work of academic intellectual history and also political theory. And so what what I'm really interested in is how this concept of civility Kind of coalesces in the 16th and 17th centuries in debates about religious tolerance, because of course the concept of civility is a very old one indeed. It comes from the Latin civilitas, which means alternatively a kind of art of good government or good citizenship, but it's also an idea, an ideal of civilization. So the civilized Roman against the barbari, against the barbarians, and so that kind of civility as a civic and civilizing discourse from the very beginning you know tracking that history but then seeing what happens in this very peculiar moment when the world of western christendom begins to fracture and break down because of the fracturing of christendom with the reformation and
1: so this is really the reformation so then one of your first key witnesses in this kind of really dramatic developer is Martin Luther. Exactly, right. So right. he's actually one of the big references. Is he a civil person in our understanding today?
0: <laughs> well, I would say not, but you know... <laughs> not really
1: at all. What's right? What's been so
0: funny to me, though, is the Luther stuff in the book was a shock to me because, you know, I know the 17th century really well, but like all historians, that means that everything happening in previous and, and post-centuries, I am pretty clueless about. <laughs> not that bad, but, you know... So I didn't know all that much about Luther, but learning how... Terrifically uncivil he was. I mean, I think, you know, I have a pretty generous definition of what it means to be civil. I think Luther definitely falls afoul of it. But there's a method to that madness. He's doing it on purpose. And it's because of what he sees being a Protestant as being all about. Being a Protestant is protesting in every way against the establishment. And that too means protesting against norms of civil Civil discourse and, and civil conversation. He's protesting
1: against the establishment, which he experiences is intolerant of his views.
0: Absolutely, and so the verbal protest, the act of calling the Pope the Antichrist. You know, in a way, that he, just
1: made me stop. Okay, so that is <laughs> that will be considered uncivil, actually, or right. beyond the pale, which we will um, define later what that means.
0: Right. I mean, so I mean, we will come to this incredibly powerful phrase, beyond the pale. But right, that moment where he says, that the Pope isn't just in error. The Pope is the Antichrist. The Pope is not a good faith participant in any kind of conversation about the meaning of our faith, about the character of orthodoxy. He is an agent of satanic forces and a symbol of the end times. And that immediate extreme polarization through a kind of protesting language. Luther is doing that on purpose and I argue in the book that the kind of theological disagreements at the heart of the Reformation obviously they matter, obviously the geopolitical dimensions matter quite a lot, but the verbal politics matters a huge amount and so what I'm interested in the book is showing how the shape of debates about religious tolerance in early modern Europe and then in early modern England in particular The shape was determined by a kind of worry about uncivil religious speech, an uncivil disagreement. So I think very often scholars have tended to think about the Reformation as being about how do we deal with religiously inspired violence and war. And I argue that, no, it's the war of words as well. And if we don't understand that that's a crucial context in which people like Hobbes and Locke are theorizing toleration, then we're missing a huge part of the debate.
1: So Hobbes and Locke come into this, and religious disagreement is what they're thinking about, or religion as a point of disagreement, a fundamental disagreement. Right. Because when we will look later at what we are today in our culture, where religious disagreement isn't the only one that is so offensive to people. Right. But you're starting out there, or you're saying this is something they're very concerned with, because that threatens to tear people apart in some fundamentally irrevocable way.
0: Right. So let's bring it back just a little bit to the meaning of civility in the Roman Empire, right, where civility on the one hand is this kind of civic ideal and on the other hand a civilizational ideal. And to be civil then becomes the mark of the civilized member of the Roman body politic. Well, that's an idea that gets taken up in lots of different ways in lots of different places. But by the time that the Reformation happens in Europe, the ideal of civility as the mark of civilization of the good Christian, who's a member of the Corpus Christianum, what binds us together as a Christian civilization is our shared religion. And so When that religious consensus or that religious bond, you know, in the language I use in the book is of the vinculum societatis, right, the bond of society, when that breaks down, well, suddenly you have to come up with a kind of alternative basis for civility, of of that sort of virtue that holds us together as a civil body. And so the people that I'm interested in are people like Locke and Hobbes, of course, but also Roger Williams. They're working within an English Calvinist tradition of trying to understand how the standard of civility relates to the bond of Christianity. And so the extent to which civility depends on some kind of religious consensus is very much a topic of debate. And so that's what I was really fascinated by. It, sort of, it seems to be a clear case of very highly intelligent people who are also dealing with practical challenges on the ground trying to figure out what we actually need to share in order to have a society that's a going concern, but then also being really specific about what we don't need to share. And in this case, what we don't need to share is some kind of religious orthodoxy, some kind of set of shared beliefs.
1: So if we're looking at two continents, so Locke and Hobbes, what is the limit or the edge at where we would not share something anymore? When you're saying there's this kind of general, loosening or even breakdown of kind of a religious coherence or that everybody is part of one thing. Mm -hmm. And then before we shift to Roger Williams in America, where this plays out differently or he takes some of these ideas and tries to implement them even.
0: Right. So the difference is Hobbes and Locke are both working within the English context where there is a national church. And so the idea of civic unity being predicated on a religious unity goes hand in hand with this idea that to be an English citizen, you have to be a communicating member of the Church of England, which means that you actually have to take communion. So a lot of the sort of controversial legislative debates that are going on at this time are debates about how often you have to be seen to be taking communion in the church in order to be able to hold office. These kinds of things. And so Hobbes and Locke are both thinking about the bond of civility in that context. Hobbes, I think, you know, he basically wants to say, you know, this attempt to impose orthodoxy in thought, to try to have people think the same thing, to have a kind of consensus, that is a recipe for warfare. We see that falling. We see what's happening in Europe that's falling apart. But the idea of a sort of national church is onto something in terms of shared conformist behaviors, so where we all come together and profess to believe the same things, profess our allegiance to the sovereign. It's like a
1: performative politics. you it, At least you're doing the same rituals. You show up on Sundays or Saturdays, whenever it is, to the same things. Absolutely. And people see you, so there's a kind of bearing witness to it. So you're seen, which makes you in the eyes of others also you would look dishonest or hypocritical if you went on Saturday or Sunday and did this, but then acted. So there's a kind of social obligation instituted that has, doesn't have to be enforced by violence
0: all the time. So I think that's right. I mean, Hobbes, I mean, we have to remember it's Hobbes. I mean, Hobbes keeps open the idea that all of this will be enforced. because Ultimately, it relies on the coercive apparatus of the Leviathan state. What's interesting about him, where I think many people who've read the book maybe got the wrong idea in thinking that I'm sort of that Hobbes is my villain or I'm sort of anti-Hobbes. I actually think Hobbes is really brilliant because he has this idea of civility as a virtue of civil silence. So we agree not to disagree. We agree just not to speak about the things that really divide us, the really fundamental disagreements. But that not saying is secured in a way by our continued participation in these civic rituals, in our belonging. So in a way, I think Hobbes thinks that, you know, you can think whatever you want, and I can know that you are probably thinking, muttering internally about the silliness of whatever thing has been put in the prayer book. You know, and we can sort of wink ironically at each other and know that this is all a kind of performance, but our willingness to perform and create, as I mean, Hobbes is this wonderful theorist of performative politics and the sort of creation mm-hmm. and construction of a civitas through through ritual. I think that it's a compelling account of how civic unity could work. And I think that it is honest about some of the psychological constraints. <laughs> what,
1: honest in the sense of it leaves some things unsaid or uncoerced that I do not force you Mm -hmm. to reveal something about yourself, that with this modern understanding of subjectivity, first of all, you may lie to me to the death. Secondly, you may not know it yourself, kind of. It may Mm -hmm. be a matter of conscience or belief that you can't prove, and I'm going to keep on trying to prove it. So you have this kind of beginning or this idea of subjectivity that I wouldn't really know your truth, Mm -hmm. but I respect you have it. And as long as you kind of perform in accordance with it, you're not too much of a contradiction to me, it'll be fine.
0: So I think that's that's right. There's a way in which Hobbes is actually really sort of hyper-modern here in a way that can feel quite congenial. But it does rely on this sense of a willingness to be a hypocrite, basically, to make this division between our insides and our Mm -hmm. outsides and a mutual awareness that we're making that division. It's an embracing of the kind of hypocrisy of everyday life. Everyday and so life, right. In making
1: which, that which, which is a very modern Think of, Freud wouldn't call it hypocrisy. It's, 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 we have an unconscious. <laughs> there are things we don't know about ourselves, so I would act in certain ways. So, a, but I it's interesting don't to don't say hypocrisy to as a kind of enabling condition. Yeah. To say that absolute ruthless honesty would be compromising maybe the other, but also compromise yourself in a way to exhibit something about yourself that then... So you're saying there's a kind of mutual agreement to leave things unsaid.
0: Yeah, and a kind of mutual agreement to conceal or not say. In Hobbes you have this idea of sort of representative publicness. So what we're fighting about really is what manifests in the kind of representative public sphere, sort of what face the Leviathan is going to wear publicly. Lots of stuff that actually you know, appears in the eyes of others that we see, you know, on the street or walking, you know, it is in the unrepresentative public sphere. And that's fine, so long as we don't talk about it.
1: Interesting, (laughs) okay.
0: You know, I describe this in the book as a system of kind of difference without disagreement. We can differ all we want, but we have to sort of remain committed not to making those differences the subject of public contestation or debate.
1: So when we walk into the real world, Mm -hmm. let's say the new world, So with Roger Williams, we come to America, so he comes to Massachusetts first, does he arrive first, and so he ultimately settles what is now Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. He takes some of these ideas and how does he try to work them out? Because what you just said made me think, sort of, sounds John Rawlsian or something, a little abstract, when you're sort of in the marketplace, (laughs) in the village, in the town, it becomes a little more complicated.
0: I think that's right. It's all well and good to theorize this from the armchair. It's, you know, it's slightly unfair to Hobbes because he very much is, is living through a tumultuous time. But it also has to be said that he bragged to his contemporaries that he was the first of all that fled from the English Civil War. So, you know, he got the heck out of Dodge pretty quickly and is writing all of this stuff while he's in France in the court in exile. But anyway, right. I mean, my take on Roger Williams, who is younger contemporary of Hobbes, is that basically, in a lot of ways, he's a kind of Hobbesian, and and he's also fully a Calvinist, so he's working with this distinction between inner and outer, between civil and spiritual, and thinks that social life is going to hinge on us making these distinctions in a pretty strict way. But there's a huge spoiler in the works, which is that he is not only a Puritan but he's an evangelical Christian. And so that aspect of the Hobbesian solution where we agree not to make certain things public just isn't going to work because Williams has this sense of the core, he's a good follower of Luther in this regard, that a core duty of the Christian is to evangelize and protest and witness against sin and call the Pope the Antichrist because he's asking for it. Um, (laughs) So it's that really... I think, fascinating combination and peculiar combination of, you know, these positions formed in England and then transported overseas to the context of a Puritan New English settlement in Boston that leads to a sort of, let's say, memorable conflagration when Roger Williams begins to make himself obnoxious to just about everyone.
1: And what happens to him then? (laughs) So in some ways, it's really interesting that it's this kind of shift and it's, I think for us kind of has allegorical significance, mm-hmm. it comes from this British philosophy and then it's imported into the new world where right. there's, a, on the one hand, new challenges. You have Americans here, what they're called, so what we call them Native Americans or, you know, Indians, so mm-hmm. populations, huge populations right. to deal with that. And how is he being dealt with being this evangelical, what we call a very righteous person?
0: right? Williams, I like the word you use, allegorical, because I think that you know Americans do have this peculiar mania for rendering our, our past allegorical and explaining how it explains everything today. And I'm guilty of that. As, but it's, as, as it's, any it's
1: powerful. I think it's actually <laughs> but it is. why I'm interested in your work. It's sort of, it's, it powerfully informs. And what you're laying bare is kind of there's a movement to ideas. The ideas change yeah. and they adapted. And I'm interested, so how does Williams adapt Hobbes to this new world? Where right. Which becomes interesting to us as Americans. Sort of like we take ideas from elsewhere and try to make them work in this melting pot. of
0: Right. And what fascinated me, and I became, I try in, in all of my work and in, in the book especially, I'm keeping an eye always on how is the theory interplaying with practice and thinking about practice as an input in theory not just an output and so williams who's formed intellectually philosophically and theologically in old england is then confronting practical challenges in new england among the americans and among the new english and what you find is the theory changes the theory adapts and then and that's what's so compelling and so what williams i mean not only is he brilliant and fascinating and inspiring and all these things, he's just a really difficult person. And so what happens when he arrives in Boston is that he just right off the boat, quite literally, offends everyone by basically accusing them of being polluted by anti-Christianity, which means that because they haven't formally separated, they're all Puritans there, but because they haven't formally separated from the Church of England, they're basically still tainted by its historical association with the Catholic Church. And so for Williams, it's this relentless drive to separate oneself, to really purify oneself and one's church spiritually, that drives everything else. So he refuses to join the Boston church, which is a huge insult. He moves to Salem because he thinks that the church there is more pure, and you know, you know might. we wonder what role he might have played in the witch trials that came later, but thankfully he got out of there, so I don't have to deal with that problem. Um, <laughs> but even then... Sometimes even,
1: history does you a favor. So
0: exactly, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> but even there, he is really wrestling with this idea that no earthly institution is going to be sufficiently pure, because I can't be sure that my fellow men, and it goes back to the problem you raised earlier about insides and outsides, how can I know the state of your soul? How can I really know Mm -hmm. that they're regenerate, that they're Mm -hmm. good Christians? That's sort of the beginning of Roger Williams's sort of journey, and this is the allegory it comes out his strong, journey into the wilderness, right? Although, you know, that's the romantic way of describing it. Really what happens is he's made himself so obnoxious and promised to stop publishing these incendiary things over and over again and then keeping, you know, reneging all the time that finally the Bostonians are like, Oh, I cannot deal with this guy and they want to deport him back to England, but then he escapes in the military. So of the much night.
1: more free speech at that moment in exactly. America, right?
0: Exactly. So anyway, so then then he goes off and takes refuge with Wampanoag tribe first, and then the Narragansett. And of course, this is an uncomfortable fact for many William scholars and sort of super fans, of which there are, there are there are many, is that you know the reason that he knows the American tribe so well and the reason that he's friends with them is because he has been working among them as a missionary. That's why he knows their languages. That's why he knows their ways. It's that missionary connection that then leads him to found what will become Providence Plantations in the colony of Rhode Island.
1: But Providence Plantation, which becomes Rhode Island, as you're saying, they're super fans because it creates a model. There's one sort of this landing point in your book, sort of this idea of mere civility. There's something that is developed there. So mm-hmm. what is this idea of living together?
0: Right, so Williams in Providence is thinking about the same problem that Hobbes and Locke are thinking about in England. It's thinking about this, okay, What can be the bond of society? What can hold us together when we no longer have a shared religion? But of course, he's thinking through that problem under wildly different circumstances. Namely, he's trying to get a new colony going. A colony that's menaced on all sides by, first and foremost, the New English. So Massachusetts and Connecticut are constantly trying to take over. Williams's plantation it's menaced from the inside by the fact that you know the white english people who come and join him in providence are other religious nutcases part in my who probably impression. come and think I have a
1: better version of what you're doing <laughs> exactly. than you did and you did a couple of months years back. <laughs> Exactly.
0: so all you know so other commentators and critics joke at the time that basically Rhode Island ends up being the latrine of New England, the sewer of New England because all of the people who are being exiled and kicked out because they're so obnoxious and so extreme theologically end up in Williams's colony And then also you have the politics of hostile tribes in the area. The fact that William wants the New English in Rhode Island to actually live on good terms and in close connection with the Narragansett. Who are
1: sovereign tribes at this moment, so hostile from the perspective of the New English, but for their perspective, sovereign tribes who've been encroached upon, right?
0: Absolutely. And for William, it's about respecting Narragansett sovereignty. So
1: that's actually quite interesting. So that's a different model than what ultimately will be worked out. I mean, it will take a long history. Right. So there's a respect or for a completely different culture.
0: Well, I think arguably what really crossed the line for the Bostonians for people in Massachusetts Bay with Williams was the fact that he'd been arguing that Massachusetts was you know I think he said you know is a national sin because basically arrested on this expropriation of the Americans based on a specious claim that Christians had the claim to their land. And so he'd been circulating a pamphlet arguing that case, a pamphlet that's now lost, but it seems like that's initially the thing that really burned up his fellow Puritans because he was arguing about the sovereignty of American land rights. And so, of course, I mean, I don't want to... There's a strain of William scholarship that tends to really romanticize him and say, oh, look, he's like a multiculturalist of all the letra and all these things, and I really try to push back against that because, no, I mean, he's he's an evangelical Christian. He believes in the truth of Christianity. He thinks that the Narragansett are engaged in devil worship... But it's his evangelical impulse that actually makes him interested in and committed to living with the Americans. And his insight, which I think is the brilliant insight, but an insight that would only come from practice, really, that civil life, social life, requires that we have much less in common than we think. So all of these theorists who are thinking through this problem of coexistence in England, they've just imbibed this assumption that something like a national church is going to have to hold us together. Mm-hmm. Maybe the national church is no longer a religious thing. Maybe it's a kind of you know Hobbesian sort of secular performance right. and a kind of national identity. Yeah. Right. But Williams, just, he has this epiphany because of the circumstances he's living under. It's like, oh, we don't need that. In fact, we don't want that because that's going to be a recipe for even more conflict. So Williams comes up with what I, you know, call a sort of a theory of mere civility, which says basically, and somewhat perversely, that what will hold us together is our commitment to having these fundamental disagreements in a fairly evangelical way, but on terms of mere civility that, you know, as an expression of our willingness to live together.
1: So what you're taking is this concept of mere civility, which becomes something like the basis for a lot of American thinking about how this very pluralistic nation can be held together with all of its challenges of who really belongs, even in this plurality. How do you account for this evangelical strain and Williams? Do you sort Mm -hmm. of filter that out in a way, and I don't mean in a kind of deceptive way, but sort of say, you don't want to hang on to this part, but you think there's something else worth hanging on to here. There's something that is productive in this mere civility, and you're not saying I'm endorsing this because that still seems to be fueled by this evangelical conviction behind yeah. it. Yeah,
0: I mean, so far from it. For me, this is where it's maybe worth remembering that I'm coming from the field of academic political theory and particularly debates in the 90s and 2000s about public reason and Rawls and how you know the problem that religion poses for the public sphere, which I do think is a basically Hobbesian and then sort of Lockean position. One of the things that made me so interested in Williams was precisely the evangelicalism, saying that, look, here's someone who is, strictly speaking, intolerable under all of your Rawlsian theories. We shouldn't be able to accommodate him. And yet he, in the 17th century, has come closest to the institutions that we associate today with liberal toleration, starting, first and foremost, with the idea of non-establishment. So there is no established church in Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. It's not actually a formal system of toleration where there's an established church, but dissent is permitted. No, there's never any established Mm -hmm. church in Rhode Island. And for Williams, that's absolutely crucial because he thinks that the mere fact of an existing national established church being publicly endorsed is a problem. But how can we take on Williams' arguments without necessarily taking on his theological Premises. But what you
1: just said, what's very important, the establishment involves non-establishment, right. which is our establishment clause. You can be free to have any religion you want exercise. Right. You can have no religion in this country. Exactly. That's always forgotten. That if you can be any religion you want, you can also have no. Yeah. So I talked with Echo Yanka a couple of days ago on the podcast, and we said we don't think there's one American president, U.S. president, who has not taken the oath on the Bible. Right. But he would have the option to do so, or yeah. she would have the option to do so but it's an option to not have religion. So Williams doesn't say there has to be that would be a a mistake to impose a church.
0: Mm-hmm. Not just a mistake. You know, he's never one to lower the rhetorical tenor, but you know, it's a form of soul rape basically. Okay. It's an imposition. <laughs> and it's a sin. You know, even if you don't accept his premise, he, he thinks that it's a violation of both tables of the Ten Commandments, right? It's a violation of our civil duties to each other and our spiritual duties to each other to impose on people's conscience in that way. And so even the option to dissent from an established church, he thinks, is a kind of imposition Mm -hmm. on your conscience.
1: So then mere civility becomes this kind of bond without coercion or something like that. So you're trying to come up with something. There's the literary critic Maurice Blanchot once said, something like union without unity Mm. so it holds us together or Hannah Arendt says the world is held together with these networks of relations and the absences of relation she acknowledges there's failures breakdowns gaps lacks that is part of what the world is made up on it's not this idea that everybody's connected but that we're not connected is also a reality
0: that's lovely So,
1: so this kind of mere civility as a kind of Baseline, but what you're not saying is mere civility. It's civility light. It's a weakened version. It's a lesser version. You're actually saying it's a very powerful conception,
0: and it's it's really quite demanding, actually. I mean, it, the idea that so mere, mere civility is minimal, but it's not easy at all. It's a quite radical commitment to coexistence and sharing a life, but that accommodates and indeed sort of depends on negative affect as much as on positive affect. I mean, part of the things that I was reacting against within political theory and then again in just public discourse about civility was this kind of tendency to say, oh, well, we need to come together, we need to respect each other, we need to accept each other, you know, in this kind of happy-clappy kind of aspirational theory. Whereas what I thought was really interesting about Williams was that I think he sees that there's something really in opposite about aspiration when dealing with this problem. And so long as we are relating, even if we're relating negatively, that itself means we're meeting the bar.
1: And how does this play out in the difficult cases? So I think some of the people you've been engaging with is sort of Jeremy Waldron, mm-hmm. Martha Nussbaum, John Rawls, which. I've had Jeremy on the podcast, right. you know, he has an understanding of civility and sort of it is needed at some point to actually stop short of where he says there are harms to dignity yeah. that are irrevocable because they exclude people from the public. So mm. they put them beyond the pale, which I love them when you define this. Tell us what this idea comes oh, yeah. from beyond the pale because it comes up so much in these conversations. It's actually from Ireland, I believe. Right. So can yeah. you just tell us what that means?
0: It's so funny, it's one of these places where, uh, again, you know, in academic political theory and political philosophy, we often have the conceit that we can think about these problems detached from history, that history is distraction. But Beyond the Pale is such a great example right. of words and expressions carrying their histories with them, and histories of exclusion and oppression. Um, so the pale derives from the Latin palace, which means stake, sort of fence stake. And historically, the pale was the geographic area around Dublin where, so Dublin was the base of the English conquest of Ireland and so you know this is an older history so I think the Pale really kind of settles around 13th and 14th centuries. But then with the Reformation English cultural hegemony becomes a kind of Protestantized Englishness against a kind of barbaric Irish Catholicism. So technically when we use the phrase beyond the Pale what we're saying is you're like a barbaric Catholic right. Irishman as opposed right. to a civilized Protestantized anglicized and we still use that
1: we still absolutely. say this is beyond the pale which means this actually compromises the continuation of our dialogue what you just said puts you beyond the pale but what it really means I can no longer listen to you
0: absolutely and so that move right I mean in, in a way I mean I've, I've had I find my disagreements with Waldron very productive, and also with Nussbaum. What attracts me to the Williams position, and so this is maybe the more theoretically detailed side of the book and my argument, but it's basically saying that all questions of religious toleration actually raise three questions. So there's always a question of how much difference can we bear? How much do we have to share in order to make that difference bearable? And then where do we draw the line? And I feel like most conversations about civility, civility is always an answer to the second question. It's sort of what do we need to share right. in order to make our differences bearable and continue to have a society. We define civility, we theorize civility as an answer to the second question, but then we mistake that answer to the second question as an answer to the third question. So once we've defined civility, anyone who, fails, who falls short of that bar is beyond the pale. We've drawn the line. Tell
1: me again the three different categories. The second one is what we share. The right. first one is...
0: How much difference How much can, can we bear? Can we bear?
1: So, so the difference, difference would be if you're not part of what I consider even part of the human race, because you are a devil, right? You're not sort of all the terms that we've seen throughout history. You are not civilized. You are a savage. You are native. You are barbarian. You're, an you're anti-Christian. all those different things. You're anti-Christian. <laughs> exactly. You're not one of us in, a, in such a fundamental sense that you're not really part of the human race.
0: The naive, intuitive answer is, well, no, you can't live with devil worshippers. I mean, they're worshipping the devil. But someone like Williams is going to say, well, actually, no, 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 you can. You can live with devil worshippers, so long as we share this something else. And so then, okay, well, what is this something else? Mm -hmm. Well, it's mere civility. It's a sort of minimal conformity Mm -hmm. to norms of respectful interaction, doesn't rely on actual respect, which is crucial. But William says, so that's my answer to the second question. But then someone's going to come along and say, okay, well, then people who fall short of that, surely, then they're beyond the pale. They can't be part of the society. And what I think what William says, and I think it's the only thing to say, really, is no, no, no. We tolerate incivility, too, in a tolerant society. We have to. But that doesn't spare us the work of asking and answering that second question thinking about what we need to share to constitute us as a community and having a sense of what's beyond that line but not using coercion
1: so in the way this has worked out this seems very difficult in assuming that people on both sides have to agree to this kind mm. of sense that you have to participate in minimal civility right yes. this is the whole thing it's sort of like you're saying well let's talk about what we could potentially possibly share if I don't believe there's anything we share. And I say, well, I don't even want to engage in that. Right. So it, as much a duty as it is a kind of opportunity.
0: I think that's right. That is a sense in which I think actually it's not possible to bracket or downplay the evangelical core of this. It's Let me make explicit. I mean, I think that, you know, I'm not a religious person, and yet there are ways in which I'm an evangelist for the things that I really care about, right? I think that all people have a kind of capacity to be evangelical about certain things and imperial about other things, right? So I think that there's a kind of evangelical human capacity that mere civility trades on, which is if you really care about something, you should want other people to care about and know about that thing too. And I think the language of duty is apt. It's not pleasant (laughs) to be (laughs) evangelized to very often. It's not pleasant to be subjected to this sort of thing. But whoever said that tolerant societies were pleasant places to be. Mm -hmm. And so that's a place where I would just want to push people. Again, this is a really human impulse. It's also a, a philosophical impulse to assume that all good things go together in a neat way so our society can be tolerant it can be egalitarian it can be inclusive it can be just all of these things can go together and everyone can feel good about themselves too and i just don't i have a more pessimistic view you know if what you care about is tolerance and inclusion the criterion of mutual respect is going to be really hard to meet And I think that's really the core of my Mm -hmm. disagreement with Waldron, is I think that he has a sense that these things can go together in a way if we have a sufficiently sort of formalized understanding of what civility requires. Well,
1: this is important, the formalized part. I think Jeremy Waldron, you know, I I don't want to paraphrase him incorrectly because I would really do a terrible job of it, but he ultimately says there's some sense sometimes you have to impose things, formalize in a way their laws. You live in a country currently UK has, you know, very different understand not very different, but somewhat different understandings about certain things. Yeah. As we know in this country we protect all sorts of speech, we actually are completely okay to penalize other speech. Mm-hmm. Commercial speech is much more regulated. Commercial interest is protected above dignity. You know, if I Absolutely. if I libel you as a public figure who benefits from your reputation, you can sue me on that if it actually detracts from your potential income. If I insult you as an individual, you can't litigate as easily. That's interesting. So those are just differences. I don't want to go into sort of why this, but more. So Waldron says, well, some things you're going to have to impose. Sure, absolutely. You know, as we know also, they change over time. The courts rule differently. There's not Mm -hmm. a static interpretation of the law. I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding that the law is absolute and always been the same and self-enforcing. But So you're saying you would shy away from trying to impose that, but you are not shying away from saying it's going to be hard on people, it's going to be really difficult, they have to put up with things.
0: I think there are two important distinctions to make here. Firstly, just to acknowledge, I think the point you've just made about the contingency of ideas of free speech and civility in different national contexts and even subnational contexts is really crucial. And I would say, you know, it's not that here history really matters, and the kind of parochialism of a lot of theorists who think about these issues who are theorizing in a particular context and assuming, you know, just as is often the case, that somehow America's very strange free speech norms are sort of somehow well, normative. And, <laughs> the then the normative of the and I've talked to you know,
1: really certified experts on free speech, all of whom, including the absolutists, have said there's no such thing as absolutism, of course. That's an absurd idea. If you do belie- believe that means all speech is always free. Even people who are absolutists recognize certain regulation right. is necessary. And secondly, that today's jurisprudence isn't the one that's always held. So right. it was different 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago. So there's a contingency, but it's not arbitrary. Right. It's historically determined, and that's why we're doing this kind of work, to think of what are the basic assumptions.
0: I just hilariously, as a sidebar, I've been accused of being a free speech absolutist, which I find really amusing because I <laughs> think... I think part of my whole argument is that a lot of the debates that we have about free speech aren't... I mean, I think that the phrase free speech is pretty vacuous, that there are actually different concepts of free speech that have themselves have long histories. But also, very often when we're fighting about free speech, for example, in universities today, what we're really talking about is different codes of civility, sort of what are the norms of civility that should uphold. Anyway, but the two distinctions that I think are relevant to my disagreement with Waldron... I mean, one distinction is between civility and other kinds of conversational codes and standards so i want to be really hard line about civility as the conversational virtue that's expected from members of a tolerant society as such so in a way i think talking about civility in the context of the university or the context of the congressional chamber or any of these kinds of things is a kind of just a category mistake those are cases of what's the standard of decorum say or the standard of respectful interaction Civility is a kind of peculiar, particular thing and is necessarily going to be a much lower and a much more permissive standard than the standard in those other places. So that's one thing. The second thing is to say that, you know, I'm no anarchist. I absolutely (laughs) understand the importance of regulating speech, restricting speech in certain cases. But I think that civility, this comes out clearly historically, I think, civility is unpromising terrain for legislation Mm -hmm. because the point about civility is that just as we can't avoid asking and answering that second question of toleration what do we need to share we also need to remember that everybody else is asking and answering that question and answering it in a different way our perception of what is required to make coexistence possible is one of the things that we differ absolutely about and so, you know, I'm open to saying that there are laws about speech and laws and even, you know, rules about decorum. So the language of formality, right? We can have kind of rules of formality, but legislating civility is another business because it is a kind of conversational virtue that takes into account the inevitable contestation about what it means to belong to the body politic, and especially if that body is a, is a tolerant society. So, I would say my conclusions are kind of civil libertarian conclusions. I mean, ultimately, I'm standing back and saying that no, I mean, the state should be in the business of regulating civility. I recognize the dignitarian harms that Waldron points out and concede that they are harms, but nevertheless, for me, in the balancing, I say that the drive of inclusion actually means that we should under regulate as opposed to over regulate.
1: Let me ask you a question related to this. So, when you talk about dignitary harm, which is how Waldron defines the effects of cumulative hate speech, mm-hmm. I'd say, in a kind of summary way. You haven't written a book on, it's not a theory of democracy, it's not a theory of equality, it's not a theory of justice. The term equality is quite interesting to me, and I've had conversations with people mm-hmm. actually at a conference, and someone really was quite upset with me, and he said, you're imposing equality, you're just assuming equality is something everybody agrees to. And I kind of looked at them naively, I said, well, we're Americans, we do, actually. And there's a kind of interesting moment in Jefferson when Thomas Jefferson, sort of when he establishes the University of Virginia and he talks about education and he Mm -hmm. says, you know, I would like equality to be as self-evident as a mathematical formula, but I can't. So we're just going to have to impose it in a way. And he's unhappy with that because I think what he's getting at is what you were saying. You want to resist as much as you can imposing something that's shared by people because you don't know whether they're going to share it in any case or then they don't have room to disagree. It's like Mm -hmm. the way... Williams didn't want to impose a church in his colony. But equality is sort of an, an assumption that I always thought in America is sort of an mm-hmm. assumption you can't undo. You can't say, well, I'm against equality, really. And a lot of the conversations I've had that speech actually conflicts not with dignitary harm or dignity, but with mm-hmm. equality, and not with inclusion and offense, but with equality. Does it then make any sense to sort of say, like, is equality something that Jefferson imposed? We live with it. You know, all men are created equal. Now we include women in that as well, <laughs> you know, we're struggling with that.
0: Yeah, I think that is exactly where the, Discussion then needs to go. And actually so you know, I'm clear in in the civility book that this you know, and I think I have that section. This is not a theory of democracy, this is not a theory of equality, this is not a theory of justice, it's is a theory of civility. But actually the book I'm working on now So I didn't
1: want to make that mistake, right so you are writing that book now. Okay. Great. So the
0: book I'm working on now is a book on equality. Okay. Taking up precisely some of these questions. I think
1: you inaugural lecture at Oxford is is there a lecture you gave on equality on basis? It's online, actually. I can put a link yeah. to it on the so, website. Yeah,
0: yeah exactly. So it was a, a lecture I gave at Cambridge as part oh, of so yes. skinner Fellowship. The project is about the theory and practice of equality and how we constitute a society of equals through practices of mutual acknowledgement. So you, know, you can see how it comes out quite naturally from the civility work and how, mm-hmm. you know, how we construct our tolerant society through norms of civility. One of the things that was very clear to me in working on civility was that very often, again it's an example of wanting all good things to go together, a lot of theorists wanted to make or assume that civility would be a robustly egalitarian norm. And I just, no, no. I mean, civility is about the maintenance and construction of societies and also the hierarchies that are constitutive of those societies.
1: Civility or equality.
0: Civility is. Civility
1: is. And how does equality relate to this then? So
0: you can have an egalitarian, a more egalitarian Mm -hmm. code of civility Mm -hmm. for sure, right? I mean, civility will Mm -hmm. be part of constituting a society of equals as it will be constituting a society of unequals. But civility always, it rests on a constitutive inequality in the sense of civility rests on constitutive exclusion. So civility is always about regulating who's in and who's out in our society and there is an implicit hierarchy between insiders and outsiders. It's better to be inside than out. And so with civility, I don't think you can get away from the fact of exclusion and the fact of notional hierarchies of value informing the goodness of the status of being within. And so that that was the question that really got me interested in, you know, just the emergence of equality as a political ideal and sort of what it means. So in the new book, I'm it's a similar time period in that I think something important happens in the 17th century. But again, it's engaged with questions of high political theory on the one hand, and so equality as a kind of quasi-mathematical principle, how that kind of language of talking about equality is also meeting up with, being inspired by, but also pushing back against a kind of down and dirty discourse of, sort of social practices. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. how do we... Acknowledge one another as equals in Christ. How do we acknowledge one another as equals, as citizens? And that business of always kind of trying to acknowledge equal status, but at the same time inadvertently contemning people to a lower status, making the distinction of oh well, my equal status relies on constitutive exclusions, like you know my status is an equal and freeborn English man rests on knowing myself to be other and better than english Mm -hmm. women or non-english men etc so those sorts of dynamics i think are really fascinating and you know the question of how do we constitute a society of equals is one that i'm wrestling with as a as an academic as a citizen (laughs) as an immigrant All of these things. Again, I'm hoping that history can shed some light here, but maybe not provide any easy answers.
1: Well, the one thing we can say, we're certainly in this moment in time, I think a lot of people are very, very interested in the kind of historical origins of these concepts because they're being bandied about or people feel they're being abandoned Mm -hmm. or misused. So how do you feel when people call for civility over and over again, every single day? I mean, I read both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, and I see calls for civility on both sides, and I actually see in the same editorials that the other side is always uncivil. Right. So how does it make you feel? And people probably tweet at you or call you and say, Teresa you know, don't we need more civility? And Can you give us some, please? Can you give us a dose of civility here on how to do this right?
0: <laughs> right. I mean, so on the one hand, I'm edified. People should always call me asking for <laughs> advice because I'm always right. But yeah, there is a deep It's As of... a good
1: sort of super fan of Roger Williams, you're always right. <laughs> <of>, you <know? laughs>
0: <laughs> the righteousness of right. she who is always right. No, there's a kind of, honestly, a kind of weariness actually about this debate because I'm giving a talk later tonight and one of the points I'm going to make is just that, look, you know, civility talk... So this constant sort of partisan back and forth about people calling for more civility, accusing their opponents of incivility. Civility talk is bullshit. It's bullshit. We talk about civility, we reach for this early modern concept because we want to punish and to exclude and to suppress. Because civility, if we can adequately and successfully stigmatize our opponents as uncivil, then...
1: So what you're saying is what in your generation millennials would say it's been weaponized. It, the concept has been weaponized. So when I call for civility, I'm really saying I'm actually saying you're not civilized, you're beyond the pale, you're not adhering to the rules, don't have and you're
0: unacceptable. I don't have to engage with you yes. at all. And free
1: speech is not a dissimilar fate right now. It's weaponized pretty strongly as someone says free speech. You set up as either being for or against, or against it, as it. if right. there's such a thing. And while you're speaking, you're being against it, or while you're speaking, you're being for it.
0: And yeah. so one of the things where I feel very fortunate to be in the position I'm in is to be able to say that look we can make a distinction between the discourse and the concept. I mean, the here I am very firmly a political theorist as opposed to other kinds of maybe cultural or social theorists. And just to say that because, you know, civility talk is bullshit, doesn't necessarily mean that civility itself is bullshit. And we can use history and etymology and other forms of study to try to understand better why we keep reaching for this language what's at stake, historical models of how you know and just remember that history is a great way of reminding ourselves that things could be and have been otherwise. And that is just always a good thing to remember. I
1: think that's a good thing. I think that is a that's been strangely a bit of a learning curve for many Americans. Mm-hmm. I mean I lived through nine eleven in New York City and I kind of thought at that moment Americans in my generation would have realized that things could change overnight. But I think the realization that things tied to concepts which Mm -hmm. are considered so immovable, so permanent, so static, could change very quickly. Mm -hmm. I think that's a new realization for many people in the US, that people from other countries realize their country could be different tomorrow morning, or disappear in one day, or institutions could change. So I think we're in this moment right now where people are grasping for these solid concepts and what you're saying. History can teach us how they've informed certain efforts, experiments, some have worked, some haven't worked, but we could learn that even relying on this concept invoking it is not going to solve this problem.
0: Right, I mean, the sort of appeal to certain concepts is obvious in ours and uncontroversial as a way to sort of, you know, win an argument. I mean, you know, it's again, we, we always do this, but again, you know... Concepts like civility and tolerance and justice and equality, I mean, fighting about these things is permanent. <laughs> right.
1: I, no. First of all, I want to thank you for taking this time and actually doing this work you're doing and doing this double work of the difficult historical theoretical work of kind of understanding and sort of explaining how these concepts over where they have originated, what they mean for us today. And then also taking this time to be on, you know, not just my podcast, but actually making this available for people who don't have the time to read an academic study, who don't have the time to write dissertations or go to lectures. And I think this is critically important. What you just said about these concepts we like, so I am on the side of justice, equality, freedom, truth, and speech, of course, Mm. because I'm a good person inherently. (laughs) Richard Morty said, I think in 1998 or 1999, he published this little essay, Achieving Our Country, Mm. which I've been teaching to freshmen for 15 years and it was out of print for a moment and there he says why do some political groups namely liberals give up on certain terms so quickly while the other side just uses them the definitions are shaky no matter what but family means one thing america means one thing our country means one thing being a patriot means one thing and he said this one-sidedness that terms He was not a postmodernist, Richard Rorty, but he said there should be more open to reinterpretation, to rigorous Mm -hmm. reinterpretation. So I think your work is sort of to try to reinterpret this term, civility, so people can't just use it to beat each other up, essentially.
0: But there's content there, and that matters. And, you know, I'm always running this risk of... And partly it's just a risk of doing that. I'm, I'm very touched by what you've said because I've been doing a lot of, you know, we say public facing work, giving interviews, giving talks, these kinds of things, writing popular articles, and it's really time consuming for a young academic to be doing these things. But I do think it's really important because I'm committed to the idea that these concepts are contestable, the meanings change, but there's content there and it matters. And I'm always at risk in the kind of historically informed work I do of trying to say, oh, well, the history is somehow normative for how we should think about this. And I wanna be clear that no, it's, that's not the point I'm making, but having some sense of the rootedness, having some sense of just becoming aware of our sort of historical situatedness, I think can move the discussion forward in a way that simply using a concept like civility to bludgeon our opponents with never will.
1: Right, that's the hope. So, Teresa, I'm going to put the links to some of your other talks on the website. Your book's called Mere Civility, Disagreement, and the Limits of Toleration. I now look forward to your next theory of equality. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Think about it.
0: Thank you for having me, and it's been an absolute pleasure. Great. Thank you. Great.